amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect. Perfectly, Perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now, prepare to get fat. What's cracking, peeps? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Episode number 164, to be exact, with Miriam Kalamian on Keto for Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you by PerfectlyHealthyandTone.com. As always, before I get into this episode, just want to give you a reminder of the previous episode I did to kick off 2019. That was Being Black on Keto with Ron Garrett. And it seems like keto is a prevalent theme within radio these days. Everybody's talking about it and everybody's trying to implement some type of the keto diet. But wanted to get into a little bit more about keto specifically as it pertains to different diseases. For many of you listening out there, you know I've expressed on the podcast before that my mom passed from cancer in 2005, and this is what really propelled me on my health journey. I was a pharmaceutical rep for some time and really believed in the path of allopathic medicine. It wasn't until my mom passed away that I started to get in and really study nutrition, fitness first, then nutrition second, and hone in on those things that I didn't know about nutrition and the power of changing the diet. And that's what Miriam gets in today. I know, again, that we probably are doing a lot on keto, but I've seen some astounding, amazing things on this diet of people really reducing their health markers, putting diabetes into remission. And just this past week, I attended a low-carb conference in West Palm Beach. You'll hear Miriam talk about that at the end of this podcast. I had the privilege to go to that particular conference. And again, I've heard so many great things about this keto diet and people miraculously being able to put disease into remission. And that is my mission for you. You know that I'm a facilitator of information and it is my job, I feel, to get the information out to you so you can make a conscious decision. With that being said, I know sometimes we have these New Year's resolutions. We're pretty much toward the end of January right now. And some of you may have given up on your resolutions to be more healthy. But I just wanted to remind that you can start from any place you can start from anywhere and get to where you want to be. So if you've fallen off the horse, get back on the horse and start again. You don't have to start a specific day. You don't have to start a specific month. You can start right now where you are and really achieve your health journeys. 
Let's get in to Miriam's bio. Miriam Kalamian is a nutritional consultant, educator, and author specializing in the implementation of ketogenic therapies. She earned her Master of Education from Smith College and her Master of Human Nutrition from Eastern Michigan University. She is board certified in nutrition by the Board for Certification of Nutrition Specialists. Inspired by the work of Thomas Sifried, Miriam draws on a decade of experience to provide comprehensive guidelines that specifically address the many diet and lifestyle challenges associated with a cancer diagnosis. Miriam is a leading voice in the keto movement. Her passion for helping others implement this diet comes directly from her personal experience. Her son, Rafi, was diagnosed with a brain tumor in December 2004. Standard of care therapies failed to stop the relentless progression of his disease and it became painfully clear that she needed to switch gears quickly. This is what originally led her to Dr. Thomas Sifri's research supporting the use of the ketogenic diet for cancer. Here's what you're going to learn on episode number 164, Keto for Cancer with Miriam Kalamian. How to get over your fear of the ketogenic diet. I know sometimes when we have a diagnosis or an illness, we are afraid to implement new diet strategy. Miriam goes over her own fear and why she moved forward with using keto for her son. Why a child's immune system is stronger than an adult. I had this backwards. I thought that an adult's immune system was stronger than a child's, but Miriam steered me in the right direction. When is it too late for keto if you have cancer? I know sometimes people will move to an alternate therapy later on in the disease cycle, and this is something that may not be beneficial. What is the mechanism of cancer which makes it respond to keto so well? Miriam goes over what's happening in cancer and why keto might be the answer. Why is low protein a requirement in keto for cancer? Again, Miriam gives a great example of why you want to restrict your protein, especially when you're using this diet for cancer. How can you use keto if your gallbladder is removed? This is a question I ask. Miriam, because I know when people's gallbladders are removed, they think that they cannot metabolize fats. Should you fast if you have cancer? Another great answer here by Miriam, and the answer will be surprising to you. What is the Wahlberg effect? Many people don't know about Otto Wahlberg and his contribution to cancer, and Miriam goes over that. Now, let's get into the podcast. Miriam Kalamian, welcome to Perfectly Health in Tone Radio. How are you this evening? Hi, Darren. I'm I'm great, and uh, nice to meet you tonight. Nice to have you on. This is something that I've been wanting to discuss for a while, since simply because I think when I emailed you to have you on the show, I mentioned that my mom passed of cancer in 2005, and it's just it's very bittersweet the podcast tonight because I just lost one of my teammates from college. We played basketball together, and he just he had a bout with cancer, and he just passed. So it's going to be an interesting conversation tonight mm-hmm. to. Talk about this diet and how it can help individuals to kind of overcome cancer. But one of the obligatory questions I normally ask of my guests is, how did they get on the road to health? How did you get started? Uh, well, my road was pretty rough because it has to do with 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 loss, with cancer and loss. And that is um, my son, Rafi, was uh, four years old in 2004 when we learned he had a brain tumor. And, uh, you know, it's a, it just, it just rocks your world in the worst kind of way when, when you get that kind of news. And so we were just obviously terrified. We did exactly what we were told. The internet had very little information and what they had was just devastating to read. So we followed along with the protocol. We did 14 months with him of weekly chemotherapy and it failed. 
failed to stop the tumor from growing. So we moved to the next therapy and the next, and we did, you know, we did a series of things, each one, you know, degrading his life further until just like, just a little over two years into that, they were moving him to palliative care. And palliative care, no hope, no, no expectation of any kind of response to treatment, but they're going to continue to treat him. And that's going to mean hospitalizations and transfusions and infections and a really crappy quality of life. And he wasn't even seven at that point. So I was online just desperately looking for anything, Darren. I, you know, just, I was looking at a chemo drug that he was on that I, that didn't seem to be working, but I wanted to know more about it. It was part of a clinical trial. And, and I had uh, bookmarked a page and I went to, to look at it a few days later and there was a, an entirely different article. It was not about the drug. It was Dr. Thomas Seyfried's lab at Boston College had published a paper. This was Science Daily. So of course it was a different article I was reading that day than the few days prior. But it was uh, on, you know, what caught my eye was that this uh, ketogenic diet, which I'd never heard of, ketogenic diet in a mouse model of an aggressive brain cancer had, had extended life in this mouse model. So, you know, I know I knew that I wasn't supposed to be paying any attention to mouse studies that had been drilled into me from my son's various oncologists. And, but I couldn't help it because there was a reference to a paper in there that um, had been written in the mid-90s that had, it was human, it was two kids with brain tumors that had been put on a ketogenic diet, and eight weeks after the diet started, their tumors showed signs of taking up much less glucose. And I had no idea what that meant, I had, you know, but I emailed, I emailed the author, never expecting a response, because that, you know, when I'm sure people that have done this uh, understand that you email somebody you know, you email a doctor with a question and, you know, most likely you're not going to hear from them out of the blue unless it's your doctor. But anyway, I emailed the author of this paper and a couple hours later, Dr. Seyfried himself emails me back. And I was just blown away by that, number one, that he would take the time to do that. But he's just so passionate about his research. And, you know, over the next couple of days, he was sending me these papers and, you know, connecting me with the Charlie Foundation for kids on the diet with epilepsy because they had a protocol for using the diet with, with children. Um, and, you know, there really was very little information out there. And this was spring of 2007. But there was the Charlie Foundation. They had a moderated a forum that nobody, no doctors wanted to talk to us. We were too much of a liability doing this. But we decided we were going to try this diet. We were going to follow along with uh, uh, what they did for kids on the diet for epilepsy. And we would have our local pediatrician, who was just so wonderful. He he agreed to, you know, monitor this. You really shouldn't be doing this without having some supervision here. And his local oncologist uh, uh, agreed to a trial of the diet as well. But nobody expected what we got. You know, we would have been ha happy with any kind of a change in the three months trial that we did. Any kind of a change. And instead, my son's tumor shrank 10 to 15% in just three months using the diet. Wow. And, and yeah, we just hadn't seen anything like that. So, of course, we kept up with the diet. Yeah, what I'm always interested in what makes people try these things. And I mean that from a standpoint of I think a lot of times because I know speak just listening to your experience and listening to my experience with my mom. I think a lot of times when we're diagnosed with something that that fear comes into play. 
were there ever any hesitancy in you saying, hey, let, oh. let's try this diet or this might not work or maybe we should we should do go with the traditional traditional course of therapy for cancer? Well, I was terrified. I was terrified that I'd be harming my son by doing this, but we didn't have a conventional option open to us besides the palliative care. So palliative means they're just going to treat symptoms, basically. They're going to hope that the chemotherapy they were going to give them, it was going to be, a, I believe it was four drugs. It's called TPCV. So it was four old toxic chemo drugs that they were going to pump into this little guy until he couldn't take it anymore. And then, you know, he would be gone. That was their plan. So it wasn't much of a plan. So it, it wasn't like, it's, I, our son was not like a kid with leukemia who's got a good prognosis with with the standard of care protocol that, you know, there are child le leukemias that are very treatable with a drug called Gleevec and a very high success rate. That was not the case with our son. We were going to lose him. They were very upfront with the fact that we were going to lose him. And they were just going to like throw a chemo drug at him because they really didn't have anything else but these four old drugs to give him. And he'd already, by the way, he'd already failed one of those drugs. And it, it, in other words, it had been part of another protocol and that protocol hadn't worked. So we would just be giving him that drug in addition to the other three chemo drugs. And, and those things just, they wear down the blood counts. They wear down the immunity. Kids get infections. Like I said, you know, the blood counts drop. They need transfusions, hospitalizations. This isn't what we, you know, what we wanted for him at seven. So to put him on the diet was, was terrifying, but it became a matter, Darren, of it wasn't any more about why should we do it? It was why shouldn't we do it? Kids on the diet for epilepsy do really well with the diet and they, they don't, it's not a life threatening thing for them. So we figured that if we followed that protocol and we had somebody monitoring some of the things that we knew we had to keep keep an eye on that we would be okay and and he was okay but you know there were, like i said there was so little known about using this for anything other than epilepsy with epilepsy it's been out there since uh, the 1920s it's an old therapy for kids on the diet with um kids with intractable ep epilepsy it's not like it's gotten a lot of press but it's out there and it's been uh consistently implemented by uh, Johns Hopkins and they had written a book, so I had their book. I had the, like I said, the Charlie Foundation website and Dr. Seyfried's papers, and we just went for it. But when we had that good result, and I knew I, you know, I wasn't doing it right. I knew there were things, but I didn't understand exactly what to do. So I literally begged the keto nutritionist from the Charlie Foundation to talk to me. Um, and she said, no, we were too much of a liability, basically. <laughs> wow. I was like, no, 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 I'll sign anything. I just, I know I'm doing it wrong and I'm going to harm him. And that, that's what, that's what won her over. It was like, oh, okay, then, you know, we'll talk to her. And so it was an hour and a half call. I learned what I was, what I was doing wrong, or, you know, the basic things that I was doing wrong and realized at that point, there's nobody doing this. And if I, if I want to do this, you know, I'm going to have to learn more about it. So that was in his MRI was the end of June. By July, I was looking at programs. And by August, I was enrolled in a graduate program in human nutrition for a master's, master's degree in human wow. nutrition. So, yeah. So, you know, it's like there wasn't anybody out there to help us. And there's still now over a decade later, 
there's still very few people that will dip their toes into the cancer world. There's all kinds of coaches out there, keto coaches for athletic performance and for weight loss and for now an increasing amount of medical supervision for diabetes. Um, but for cancer, it's still just, you know, it's, it just, it's still something that people are reluctant to talk about. Like I, I have this slide presentation that, that I've done recently and I have like a stack of books. There's like seven books that go into keto for cancer in any meaningful way. And yet there's been this explosion of books. And I bet you could, you could name just off the top of your head, you could name you know, 10 to 20 of them, you know, and I, I sure can. And they're really good information, but they've got like maybe a few sentences about cancer or maybe a paragraph or maybe they mention it, but they say there's not enough evidence yet. But, you know, you know I, you, I, I think that people are afraid to talk about it because cancer is such a devastating disease. Both of you, both you and I have that experience of watching someone waste away on chemo. And I remember that experience with my mom mm -hmm. and having her go through that chemo process and watching her have issues with her heart and issues with her hands and then, you know, finally passing away. But I think people are so reluctant to talk about it. And that's one of the reasons why I feel as though we're not kind of even though we have this illusion that we're moving forward with it to look for other options it seems as though we're not really doing this like we're still at a standstill and everybody's still afraid of the c word yeah and and it just it it doesn't it didn't make sense to me then i understand now what the mechanisms are but it didn't make sense to me then that just changing what he ate and then not even a it's just like pulling out the carbs could make a difference. I really was not holding out much hope for, you know, we just were desperate to do anything, any kind of a, of, of a difference, any kind of an impact. How, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you how you mentioned earlier on, you said that you had support from your pediatrician, you had support from the oncologist. How important is that to have that type of support? Because I know from a nutritional standpoint, sometimes you're speaking with people and they go to the doctor and they take a paper and say, here, I heard this on a podcast or here, I heard this, I saw this on Facebook and they take it in and to the doctor and the doctor dismisses it. But how mm. important is it for them to have that support? And if even if they don't have that support, what should they do, Miriam? Okay. Good questions. Good questions. Yes. There are, are, there are some teams out there now that are supportive. Like if you look at, Cedars Sinai in California. Somebody if newly diagnosed glioblastoma, a deadly, deadly brain brain tumor. That's the one that John McCain had. Kills you in a record amount of time. And you know now they're looking at they're actually running a clinical trial, ketogenic diet, and it's no magic. They're doing ketogenic diet along standard of care. No magic here with the diet. So it's not like it. Like I, I tell my clients, you don't have to be in a clinical trial in order to do the diet. It's not like a drug that's $100,000 a year. And if you're not in the clinical trial, you can't access the drug. It's a diet. It's a, it's a choice in what you eat. And every time you go to the table, you're, you're making a choice on what you're going to eat for that meal. So it, you know, it's a, like your doctor can't stop you from choosing one food over another, just like a, a somebody with diabetes, their doctor can't stop them from having a bowl of ice cream. You know, knowing that it's not the best thing to do, 
so there's still that choice involved. But boy, for me, and there was like no precedent for this in the, in the cancer world. There, there were a couple of people that were like doing this, but independent and they were adults. But here I was like doing this for, for my child. I was making that decision for him that we're going to take that stuff away. So for me, it was really important because I, I didn't really understand what we even should be looking at. And, and I felt it was I, like I didn't want to make any wrong moves and harm my son just because I didn't want to harm my son. But I also didn't want to harm my son later on as I saw what the impact was. I, I also wanted to make sure that we were doing the right things, medical supervision, so that, you know, we could share this with others down the road. Because it was just such an exciting thing to have that turnaround. You think that it's just going to keep going down and down and down and down. And then all of a sudden, there's this light in the wilderness. Yeah. So as far as what the, the oncologist, oncologist did or the pediatrician did, it was basically nothing except routine blood work and reassurance to me that everything was okay. There was one time in, in the time that they were monitoring the blood work that things were kind of just really skewed, but they were skewed because he was sick. He had a virus and, uh, and I was panicked because it was like, oh my God, this must be some cumulative effect of the diet. The pediatrician was saying, I think it's just a virus. The oncologist was saying, if this doesn't turn around in a week, we're going to have to send him to Spokane and have him assessed for a new cancer. And I was just freaking out. There's like both ends of the spectrum there of, like the most concern and the least concern. <laughs> yeah, what let me let me I jump in here and just ask you real quick because one of the things that changed my mind when I was reading your book was the fact that I'd always had in my you mentioned a virus just now. I'd always had in my head that children had their immune system wasn't as developed as an adult's immune system. And then I'm finding out from the book as I'm reading along a little bit and going in and doing some other research, I'm finding out that as we get older, our immune system gets oh, weaker. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, I had this totally reversed. It's like kids would be more, more, they would be better when they having chemotherapy as a kid than having chemotherapy as an adult. Why does that, why does that happen? Is it because of, well, we- that's, that's specific to the immune system, but okay. kids having chemo has a lifetime effect on them. The quality, they've done these quality of life surveys for kids comparing them to their siblings their health issues as they get older their mental health physical health is 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 not the same it's impaired but for a lot of kids like i said for leukemia that especially that's a lifesaver for them but the 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 immune system getting weaker as we get older is what we consider to be part of the aging process so it's just assumed that people as they get older that's why so many more people um, succumb to pneumonia in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s than, than do in their 40s and 50s because their immune system can react quicker to, to this and has more resources. But as, as you get older, that immune system weakens and that's part of the reason why cancer is more prevalent in older people as well. My son's cancer had nothing to do with immune system. Brain cancer is not the same kind of deal there, but it, you, you look at what happens when you create when when there's something goes wrong in in your cell and all of a sudden now you've got like this this mutated cell your immune system is supposed to take it out we're making cancer cells all the time and our immune system is knocking them out but if the immune system somehow isn't strong enough to mount that kind of defense or doesn't recognize this 
as a uh, cancer cell or for whatever other reason, uh, if the immune system doesn't knock it out, it gives that cell the opportunity to proliferate to divide and then that cell mass to proliferate. And that's, that's where you get cancer showing up, you know, decades after the insults have started. And you see that with neurodegenerative disease too, Darren. You see there may be things going on in your 40s that are going to predispose you to Alzheimer's when you're in your 60s or 70s or even your 80s. So, you know, they're starting to understand better what those things are in neurodegenerative. And they do know. They have all kinds of like associative studies with cancer, um, with, you know, certain toxins, certain sleep patterns like circadian rhythms can your, you know, nurses have uh, a higher risk, you know, nurses that work at night have a higher mm-hmm. risk of certain cancers. Lifestyle has, a, you know, certain impact on uh, cancers. So yeah, the, the immune system does, does weaken as, as we get older. What? You work with people and you're doing consulting work and teaching people about the ketogenic diet. Why don't people ever make that connection that they need to change your change their diets? Mm. Well, you go to the doctor and the doctor says diet, you know, the oncologist says diet doesn't matter, eat what you want. So it's it's sort of baked in the cake literally mm-hmm. <laughs> right there um, <laughs> with, with having them do that. But I tell people, okay, so your doctor says diet doesn't matter, then he's just giving you the green light. He doesn't care what you eat. He says diet doesn't matter. So you could choose ketogenic if you want. And they go, oh, okay. So it's like, you, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough. You don't need your physician's, uh, you know, blessing for this. You don't need approval to start a ketogenic diet. But you do need to keep them informed of what you're doing. And you do need to listen to them if they have some real medical reason why you shouldn't be doing this. I have people like who have gone through conventional care. I had two yesterday, just two yesterday. They're, they've been through conventional care, and now they're so compromised by their disease and its treatment that, you know, they were sent home. The, the treatments have been discontinued, and they're being sent home with hospice. And it, it's that point where they find the diet, contact me, want to get on the diet as a cure for cancer. And it's like, you know, this is too late in the game. Can't, ketogenic diet is a great weight loss diet. We know that, how effective it is for weight loss. So you can't be 88 pounds and start a ketogenic diet as an adult and think that this is going to turn your disease around. There's too much going against you at that point. So, uh, you know, so I, we, that's really Yeah, I, I, I hear the frustration in your voice. And this is what I always, I have these thoughts about people because I see people even a lot of people go through this whole thing with cancer and then all of a sudden they they've exhausted all their options when there's and, no other options and right. then they're like okay well let me change my diet or let me go to this alternative therapist and uh, a naturopath or someone like that and i can't i try to wrap my head around why didn't you do this from the start why didn't you just say hey you really don't have anything to lose and i think you mentioned that earlier that so people have to they have to understand they don't have anything to lose by trying it and the, the but they don't see it it's, it's either not on their radar at diagnosis or it's been dismissed by their medical team and they believe that or they might even mention it within the family and the family says oh no you're going to lose weight if you do that diet um you can't lose weight if you have cancer and and you know all this there's a there's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't don't do it from diagnosis or even as you know even before why they don't turn their diets around. It's, it's just, it's just people. It's just how it's what we are. And it's, it's like the, I work with people who have 
tried the Atkins diet or ketogenic diet or a low carb diet and, you know, lost some weight or whatever, or felt better temper. And then have gone back to eating the way, because they saw it as a temporary thing. But when people come to me with cancer, they are so much more motivated to make that lifestyle change, especially if it's a, you know, a highly aggressive cancer and, and they've been, they've been told what the prognosis is and it, and it ain't pretty. And, you know, it's not that the ketogenic diet is going to cure cancer. It's not that it's going to like be the only therapy to do. But where we're at, Darren, with cancer treatment is we really need to find therapies that can be used alongside either, you know, whatever that person decides to do, whether it's conventional or whether it's alternative medicine, whatever they're comfortable with, they, they can use this protocol along with other things as well so that the synergistic effect of these different treatments is going to come, you know, result in a better outcome than any one of those things would have uh, on an individual basis. You know, we, the perfect model of that is what happened with AIDS back back in the 80s. I mean, we were looking at this disease that was killing everyone that got it and and in a horrible death, you know, a wasting kind of death. And it was it was the people with the disease, their loved ones and the their medical professionals that were so invested in seeing this whole thing turn around that made the difference, they're the ones that found the combination protocol. The the conventional medical world was testing one drug at a time, which is what they do in clinical trials for the most part. They test one treatment because if you test more than one thing, how do you know it was that one thing and not the combination of things? And that's my point exactly is, right. is you know, is go for the combination, go for the thing that's going to help that person. But that's not what the medical thing is, uh, the medical model is about. It's about finding a new protocol that they can give to lots of people. It's not about you or me. This is something that disturbed me a while back. I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw someone post on a ketogenic diet. And one one thing that disturbs me with nutrition, period, is that you will have one person that's a proponent of a diet. Let's say they might be a proponent of a vegan diet and then they're poking at the meat eaters. But this particular person was poking at the ketogenic diet, saying that it wasn't a, a diet that was able to be sustained long term because there are no studies out there. And I'm thinking, what does that have to do with the cost of tea in China? Because it's actually helping people. And I don't understand why we tend to focus on, we'll take a diet, something like ketogenic, we'll take a diet, something like paleo, and then we proceed to poke holes in it to figure out, hey, and tell people, that this diet may not work for you or it may not be something long term instead of embracing the diet as something that's helping individuals. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that is, is, is how do how do we handle that? Mm. There's a lot of bias in the diet world. There certainly is. There's people that are lining up even within our little keto world. We've got the, the keto vegans and we've got the keto carnivores and they fight with one another, too. And it's like, no, our world is too small to splinter it in that way. And then you get, you know, Lancet, Lancet Public Health had put out this awful paper, should be retracted, should be retracted. There's too many conflicts of interest and too much, you know, deliberate, in my estimation, deliberate misleading of the public. The headlines on the media release said that low carbohydrate diet shaves like four years off your life. And you read the, the actual paper that they're basing this on. It was an association study. They, they weren't looking at cause and effect. They were like linking, you know, this is linked with. 
But the low-carbohydrate diet they are talking about was not low-carbohydrate like you and I would think about low-carbohydrate, and it was certainly not ketogenic. So, and you know, you, there's sort of clues to that when they say low-carbohydrate, high-protein. Excuse me, but my ketogenic diet for cancer is not high in protein because that can be, a, you know, a, a cancer promoter as well. So you've got those, you know, you've got the, the biases influencing the, the, the way that people look at this data. The data's there, the, it, but how they look at it is under the influence of their bias. How they report it is under the influence of their bias. How the media handles it is under the influence of their bias. And, and it's so, it makes it, it sort of just muddies the water in, in, in our world as far as, you know, obtaining, you know, just going for the health aspects of it. And, you know, I'm not saying ketogenic diet is the only diet that's going to be beneficial to somebody with, with cancer. But I can tell you that there are other things out there posing as cancer diets, anti-cancer diets that, you know, are just not, they're just non-starters. There's, there's no plausible mechanism. The plausible mechanism with ketogenic diet is that we know everybody in the cancer world accepts the fact that most cancer cells upregulate their use of glucose. They mm -hmm. just pull in as much glucose as they can and use it inefficiently to make energy in a fermentation pathway that bacteria use. We're way beyond bacteria. We have a much more evolved system to produce energy for the, to meet our energy needs than bacteria does. But, but our cancer cells revert to that. It's called the Warburg effect, that kind of, mm -hmm. that, um, over, uh, that over reliance on, on glucose and then glucose, uh, fermented glucose makes lactic acid. That's what yogurt's about. That's what sauerkraut's about. You know, you ferment sugars and that's what you get is lactic acid. So that lactic acid being, you know, it, pushed out into the into the area around the cell inflames that causes an immune response carries those you know those cancer cells in other places in the body and also allows cancer cells to proliferate cancer loves that acidic environment so there's all these people thinking that an alkaline diet that you know if they take in the right foods yeah they, i was going to ask you about that because it's like they, this this whole thing that cancer can exist in an alkaline environment but i've studied a lot about alkalinity and it just seems that it's not, it doesn't stand. <laughs> I don't know. No, why. It's not a plausible mechanism for cancer because our, our bodies don't like it when we go one way or another. We keep our, our body pH, our system pH in very fine check. Our urine pH can fluctuate wildly, but that has nothing to do with whether or not you're getting control of your cancer. If you make your urine alkaline, that's all you're doing is making your urine alkaline. That might reduce your risk to a certain point. It's going to reduce your risk of kidney stones, you know, but it's not going to, you know, reduce your risk of cancer, not even of an, like bladder cancer. There's no proof even that it, it reduces the risk of bladder cancer if you make your urine more alkaline than acidic. So, you know, it's, and that's another, it's like there's these, you know, the Gerson therapy, the alkaline diet, the asparagus diet, actually asparagus, you know, then there's the, then there's the opposite of the asparagus diet, which is, oh, asparagine can be a cancer promoter. And sure, it may be, but not necessarily from eating asparagus or leaving it out of your diet. So the, the most, the most science, and I have that in my book, you know, for the people that are ready for the science, they can read the science in, in my book. And if they're not, if they just want to get, get on with figuring out how to do this diet, then I tell them it's okay to skip over that and they can go back to it at another point. 
when they have more of a framework and they're less overwhelmed and they're they're more comfortable with the nuts and bolts of the diet. But the the, the science being that it's not just about if it was only about starving our bodies uh, or starving our cancer of glucose and then being able to you know miraculously cure our cancer, you know that that would be out there. We'd be able to do it. But our bodies are going to make glucose no matter whether if we take in zero carbs or not, our bodies are going to make glucose through the liver because our red blood cells need it. And 30% of our brain tissue remains totally reliant on on glucose. And there's like lens tissue. Uh, there's there's a few things that are have an absolute requirement for glucose. So we can make it. We can make it out of amino acids. We can make, make it out of the backbones that come off of fats, of you know, triglycerides. We can take that glycerol backbone, turn it into glucose. We could take waste from our muscles. You know, we could take the lactic acid that's produced by anaerobic activity, turn that into glucose in the liver. Yeah, the body knows where to get things from. I know that for a fact. Oh, you bet. Yep. Yeah. Going into low carb. Low carb is actually reducing your, your carbohydrates. That's understandable. What I didn't really understand is why the low protein. For cancer? Yeah, for cancer. Two reasons. Now, there's not much of a difference, and they know that like in epilepsy, especially in teenagers and adults, that just doing it like a modified Atkins diet gives you almost the same results as doing a really rigorous ketogenic diet. But there's there's disease-specific reasons for that in, in epilepsy, and they're starting to understand more of that. But they're, they're not paying attention to protein when they do a modified Atkins. And the regular Atkins diet's not really paying attention to your intake of protein. That's where that, uh, you know, that uh, misunderstanding about ketogenic being a high-protein diet comes in. But the reason why, why we're keeping protein, I like to say it this way, Darren, we have an absolute carb limit, but we have a more flexible protein target. So, like, if, if I'm working with somebody that's in their, their 30s and they have brain cancer, I'm going to cut them down to what I feel is the minimum amount of protein that, that they need because I, I honestly believe and I've seen differences in outcomes in the people that I'm working with. I can't say, I can't generalize outside of that, that they do better if they limit the protein because the excess protein, more than what your body needs for repair and maintenance, is it, it's not stored in the body in an effective way like glucose is stored in fat cells, it's stored as glycogen. Amino acids aren't stored. So instead, they go to the liver and the liver says, oh, okay, we got, you know, we got, we got to do something with this. So um, we're going to convert what we can into into sugar, and and that's you know that's the reason that's one of the reasons because that's going to uh, make about a ten. This is a fine point, but it's it's like ten or twelve milligrams per deciliter difference that I've seen between people who control their protein and don't as far as their glucose levels go. Now there's another thing that happens with protein. And that way there's an abundance of amino acids. When you protein foods are digested into their amino acid components, those are the building blocks of, of proteins, enzymes, muscle. So, you know, these proteins are used all over, all over the body. They're very important. These amino acids are taken up by muscle. Like when you work out, your, your muscles that are being like broken down, the little micro tears and things that happen when you work out, right. that is also stimulating the, the signaling to bring those amino acids over there. Come on, bring them, bring them and divert them our way. We're going to use them for repair and maintenance of this muscle tissue right now. You know, that's important to us. But when you have this abundance of amino acids in cancer, 
you've got this signaling coming from the cancer cells that says, hey, 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 divert some, divert some of those amino acids over here because we, we need to replicate these cells really quickly because we're cancer. We need more cells. So we need more of these, these uh, components that are going to allow us to make more cells. We need more of these enzymes. We need more of these, you know, structures that we need more cell membranes too. We need all of this. So bring us some of that. So that's part of what's happening. When you do, when you go ketogenic, you're mimicking the starvation state. Your body is thinking, uh oh, not getting any glucose. We may never get any glucose. So we're going to start making it. You know, liver's going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to, you know, we need, we need the muscles need something here. So we're going to switch to burning fat. And the muscle tissue, the heart loves to burn fat. It's fats are the preferred fuel for muscle and heart. Preferred fuel. They don't want glucose. So, um, so when you do, when you go ketogenic and you shift away from glucose and you're using primarily fats, and then one of the other things that happens when you're using fats, of course, is that some of that material gets converted to ketone bodies, and those yeah, ketone wanna... bodies are what nourish the brain. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that because on several of these these podcasts I've done, I've heard the ketones and the fact that the brain actually wants to yes. run on ketones versus running on glucose. And mm-hmm. part of what we're experiencing now, you talked about neurodegenerative disorders earlier. Part of what we're experiencing now, from what I understand, is the fact that the brain is getting too much glucose and they're calling it type 3 diabetes. Well, yeah, and it's it's... It's not even that it's getting too much. That's a whole interesting thing. I'll just give you a little peek <laughs> of that one. Um, because there are, I'm sure some of your listeners that are, are dealing with some of their own cognitive issues, but also watching their loved ones develop dementia. Yes. So, and one of the things that you'll notice when you're watching someone develop dementia is the craving for sugar that they have. So, so often somebody has never had, you know, never been that interested in sweets and all of a sudden now, they, you know, they want ice cream for dessert. They want cookies and candy. They're eating a lot more of this stuff. But so the glucose level in the blood is higher and the glucose is entering the cells, as, uh, the brain cells as quickly as it can. But there's a, like, there's a, a, a failure in cerebral glucose metabolism. So the brain cells are not able to effectively use it. And then there's another thing going on, which is the insulin that helps to bring it into cells. Uh, once once it's done its job, when insulin's done its job, there's an enzyme called insulin-degrading enzyme. Well, the <laughs> insulin-degrading enzyme has another role in the body, in the brain, and that is it, it, it also clears out that plaque. So if it's got to make a choice between degrading insulin and clearing out pl- plaque, it goes with the most immediate need, which is the insulin. And in, as you get older and, and, uh, have these decades of, uh, developing insulin resistance, just as you would in type 2 diabetes, the type 3 diabetes of the brain. So there's like an insulin resistance in the brain, all this insulin and all this, this enzyme going to degrade it and not enough being left. It's not that simple, but that is one of the, one of the mechanisms that they're looking at for why using ketones as a fuel instead is a better idea. Yeah. Our brains, it's a preferential f- fuel for the nervous system, and it does not uh, uh, require insulin. It, tra- it just beautifully diffuses across that, well, not diffuses, it's transported into the cells by these little transporters on the cell surface. And, and it's the same cells that bring lactate, interestingly enough, bring lactate out of the cell. 
going back to ketones, from what I understand from the book, is that these are made in the liver and the kidneys, these ketones, if I'm uh-huh. correct. Mm-hmm. What happens, this came to me today as I was thinking, I'm sitting there at work and I'm like, well, what will happen if someone, their liver is compromised, they have a liver cancer or they have something wrong with their kidneys, that's compromised. Is the body able to, able to effectively make these ketones if those two organs are not involved? Yeah, and I do write about that in my book, and it is something that people with uh, either liver cancer or metastases to the liver or history of liver damage um, write to me about because uh, I express it as a concern in, in my book. Uh-huh. So even people who have cancer that has metastasized to the liver can still usually do a ketogenic diet, but if their liver enzymes are off the charts, then that's signaling that there's significant liver damage. And just asking your liver to do one more thing to make ketones, I'm just, I, I'm not convinced it's it's the way to go. That's not to say that you can't, you know, you can still go low carb. And possibly this is like one of the kind of on the horizon, can we use ketone supplements even with someone with liver cancer. Is that the uh, exogenous ketones? Exogenous ketones. Okay. We don't gotcha. know the answer to that yet. We need the research. Okay. But, you know, I, I take it case by case with people. I'd like to look at what their blood work is telling me about the health of their body and their liver. I look at their, their height and weight to see, you know, is this person nutritionally compromised? I look at their blood counts platelets there's there's a lot that that's why you need some oversight with cancer that you may not need with weight loss or athletic performance if, if someone was diagnosed because i know a lot of times and we talked earlier about this is that people tend to freak out when they're diagnosed if that person was diagnosed tomorrow with cancer would it be your advice for that person to start seeking out immediately to start looking at a ketogenic diet i think they should consider it and if they don't have any of the contraindications, which are the things that rule it out, if if it's not ruled out, then I say, why not try it? What are and what are some of those? Quick. What are some of the contraindications? Because just judging from diets, you know that no diet works for everybody. But what are some of those things that they might need to look out for when they say, hey, you know what, I want to go to this ketogenic diet, but maybe this may not work for me. What are they looking out for? Well, we already talked about one of them, which was they're already experiencing cancer cachexia, which is the that breakdown the of uh, body tissue, the wasting away that happens in cancer. We see it a lot in uh, colon cancer and pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer. Those are the ones where you see the most profound effects of that, at least in my experience, that's what I've seen. So, like I said, you know, giving you the, an example of like a, a, a five foot ten person who's weighing eighty eight pounds, that's not a good candidate for a ketogenic diet because I expect that they're going to lose even more weight as they move into ketosis. Um, and if they're eighty eight pounds, there's something wrong with their appetite or their ability to digest and absorb nutrients. If they're eighty eight pounds, there's something going on that's wrong there, whether it's GI motility or compromise of the digestive tract, you know, actual cancer in the digestive tract, or just total lack of appetite. So they're just like have no interest in food at all. You know, whatever it is, that's like a huge, that's the one I see most often. And the liver issues, you know, I, I work with, I've worked with a lot of people that do have liver metastases or have liver cancer, but we do it very carefully and with supervision and we get the, the team involved in oversight. Children, if uh, if a child 
if there's a, a child I and that child has a brain tumor, that's one, you know, that's a, like, yes, we should really consider this, work with your team, uh, make sure that we can do this with, with your child and I'll help you with it. I mean, that's like, I'm passionate about that. But like I said about the leukemia, the I would never suggest to a parent who has a child with leukemia that has a 95% cure rate, it would be irresponsible of me to say, no, you should do this diet. Because it's not really compatible with the Gleevec. And they have plenty of opportunities after that child has finished the treatment and the cancer is gone to improve health through nutrition. But, you know, that's a case where I wouldn't want to do it. You mentioned kidney disease. Mm -hmm. the, the kidneys play a tiny role as far as ketogenesis go. But they pay, play a huge role in filtering waste and other, and, and you know, and, talk, and, and just, you know, flushing out things. They also, when you're a ketogenic, you are making less insulin. You have less need for insulin. You're making less insulin. Lower insulin levels uh, change the way that the kidneys handle sodium. So you dump a lot of sodium. So like what a lot of people experience is keto flu <laughs> is mm -hmm. really just they're losing a lot of water and the sodium is going with it. They're basically dehydrated and sodium depleted. So, so watching those kinds of things, that's not really a, a, something that's going to rule out a ketogenic diet. But uh, if people have a really bad experience during the transition, they're going to think it has something to do with their cancer or something bad about the diet. When really, if you experienced it in a diet to lose weight, you might go off the diet, but you wouldn't be as frightened by the side effect. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I know that you mentioned in the book something about salt, and uh, I don't. I think you just you know just covered that. It kind of makes sense to me that that's why they might want to watch you know watch salt intake. So huge problem with athletes because they sweat so much, so they're losing right. um, they're losing salt the way they would normally through sweat. But they they uh, they're also losing it in the urine because they're ketogenic. So they're dumping sodium, and 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 in on a ketogenic diet, you are losing other electrolytes as well. So I I think that needs to be very carefully managed in in any ketogenic diet, or just just an awareness. So when people have like muscle cramps, they talk about muscle cramps. They're probably losing magnesium. They are losing magnesium. They may even be losing potassium. And it's certainly they're not taking in enough of those two things through diet. And it's not just the ketogenic diet that they're not taking it in. Our diets are just famous for not having enough of these, these nutrients. Calcium is a, basically it's an easier one to get, but even calcium on a ketogenic diet, it's, it's important to know what you're in. It's important to just know that information and, and, and you don't have to obsess on it. Just know how much calcium you're taking in. And if you're not meeting, you know, your needs for it, then you can supplement to meet that need. But magnesium, I see that it's just about essential for everybody. I think we're all going around a little magnesium depleted. Yeah, I think we are too as well. Going back to the ketogenic diet and just talking about fats, I know a lot of people, if they, and you touch on this in the book and I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, if people are have had their gallbladder taken out a lot of times people will say that hey i can't do any fats How, is that a myth or can they still do this diet if they have their gall but they don't have their gallbladder 
<laughs> Dear, thank you. Thanks for asking that because I don't, I just, I never think of that as an exclusion, but a lot of people with that have had that surgery and don't have a gallbladder, mm-hmm. they just automatically assume they can't digest fat because one of the things they're told if they have gallbladder issues or had their gallbladder removed is no fatty foods. It, you, and it's, that's crazy. They didn't develop the gall, gallbladder problem because they ate fatty foods. And most people without a gallbladder can do this diet easily without any kind of support. Some people will need to have a digestive enzyme that's high in lipase. I wanted to kind of save the last part of the podcast to ask you a little about a little bit about fasting because you as I expressed to you before we came on that I've been fasting for a number of years and it just seems to work work for me. And I think that there have been a lot of advances in fasting. I know uh, I do a lot of business travel and I remember watching this uh, documentary on Amazon Prime called The Benefits of Fasting, and they had people who were on there fasting. What, and I think one of the cases was cancer, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken on that documentary, but what are the benefits of fasting? Because I'm understanding a lot about uh, fasting and what is it, what do they call it, autophagy? Autophagy. Uh-huh. Autophagy, yeah. So what are the benefits of fasting, and should someone who who has cancer start fasting excellent thank you yes you have said uh, that you put it perfectly you said people get a diagnosis of cancer and they freak out and if they find that the diet or fasting early on a lot of times they will put themselves on a fast immediately mm-hmm. and i don't really suggest that they do it that way <laughs> uh, because when they're done with the fast they uh just go back to eating the way they did and that's not going to uh, help them in the long run. Mm-hmm. So I am totally supportive of fasting for people who have been given a diagnosis of cancer and are young and healthy enough to do it. But we have to understand that as we get older, and a lot of my clients are in their 60s, 70s, few in their 80s, but mostly in their 60s or 70s. And fasting for them, they're going to lose muscle mass unless they are able to keep up with a, um, like just resistance bands, light weights, whatever. I don't expect they're going to do a total gym workout while they're undergoing treatment, but you know, they, they need to keep that muscle mass. So if you go ketogenic first, you're going to have such an easier time with the fast. You're not going to experience that hunger or that, those low energies from not eating. So to me, it's just like a no brainer. Get, get, get through the transition, upregulate the enzymes that are able to use the, uh, the ketones more effectively, upregulate the number of transporters that are going to bring the ketones into the cell, get your brain acclimated to using, you know, it's going to be sharper with ketones. Uh, but get through that transition point and then start the fast. If you're, if you're healthy enough, because then you're going to minimize the amount of muscle tissue that you're going to lose during the fast. And, and, and it's like you don't go overboard. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, three weeks they can reverse their cancer. Well, you know, there may be the unusual person out there that might be able to do it, but in, in, you know, this has not been, you know, worked out medically. And I think there's a lot of advantages to doing it in a more kind of uh, measured way. So I was speaking to someone last night who's doing a three-day fast every month, pretty compromised by ovarian cancer, but still able to do a three-day fast every month, but she's ketogenic. 
So in that three-day fast, she's she's losing maybe a half a pound, but she's gaining it back. So uh, and and I'm just I I didn't actually have figures to say that's what she's that's what she's losing. But on average, that's what people seem to lose when they're ketogenic and doing a fast. So we're not sure too if it needs to be a water-only fast or if it can be a fat fast. And a fat fast would be one where you're taking in primarily what you're taking in is five six hundred calories primarily as fat, a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbohydrate. And I think the best way to do that, if you don't want to spend $350 on Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet, which is an excellent way to go, by the way, if people don't aren't ketogenic, um, that is something they should look at for cancer. But if you are ketogenic, you can make your own uh, fat fast, five, 600 calories of fat and, uh, and a homemade bone broth. And you'll get the electrolytes, and you'll get some of the, the, the soothing that's very soothing on the gut. Uh, you get a little bit of protein from that and, and then, you know, primarily fat. So people can sail through that three days doing that. That's not a strain for most people at all. And then there's a, and, and I have to give Walter Longo, he's a researcher in California, a lot of credit for like, for the science that he's published on this and for the diet that he has developed for people who are not ketogenic. That has these these fats as as a, you know as a food for a fast that they can do alongside their their treatment. And what we're finding is that the, the fasting, like before and after your chemotherapy infusion, is sensitizing cancer cells to the treatment. But it's also minimizing the side effects, the di- especially the digestive system side effects of the chemotherapy. So again, people can get through it with a much better quality of life rather than trying to force feed themselves because they're so afraid of losing weight. You know, they've been on a, on a standard diet they, and now they, they get their chemo infusion and, uh, and, and they just don't feel well enough to eat. So they're going to lose weight doing that, but it's not going to benefit them as far as their cancer goes. But if you don't eat before, don't eat the day of, don't eat the day after, then, uh, you know, if you are healthy enough to do that, then we're seeing that it does have a positive impact on cancer, even on stem cells. Yeah. My last two questions have to just deal with dietary because I know that these questions come up. The one being what I find with a lot of people is when there's a crisis, there's a disease or something, most people are thinking about money. Do Do they have, and they shouldn't be, but that's what they think about. Do they have to go out and have the best grass-fed meat, the best bacon, the best, you know, all of these things that they need for the ketogenic diet? Or can they just start where they're at and just say, hey, I have this beef or I have this, you know, whatever that I have, this bacon. It costs three or four bucks. It's not the top of the line. But can they start where they're at with something that's not what we consider the top of the line meat versus? Absolutely. Great. It's all about shifting the body into ketosis. It's not about the quality of the foods for that first period of time. And then people, they step onto the path and they get into ketosis and they get the benefits of that. And then they make these small changes over time. I see it all the time with people. I mean, I I was working with a guy, no support at home. You know, he lived alone, you know, terrible cancer. And I, this was early on. And I just was sure, I mean, this guy had never prepared a, a meal from scratch in his life. And I thought for sure he wasn't going to be able to do this. I, I sent him, I emailed him a picture of a, a steamer so that he knew and some instructions on how you could steam broccoli and cauliflower. He'd never seen a steaming basket. 
So it's like yeah, sending a picture for that. Well, that guy contacted me a month after this brief consultation I had with him. It was just like a an hour-long call and told me how good he was doing following the simple meal template that I had set up for him and 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 doing this. And it wasn't hard at all for him. And and that's it. People, they there are people get back to that continuum of people. There are people who will spend the entire day in the kitchen micromanaging every bite they eat, recording it and all of that. And and then there's people that just open the refrigerator. I had a guy tell me, you know, he opens the refrigerator, pulls out the food. It's all keto friendly, but he pulls out the food and then decides what he's going to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's those are two opposite ends of the, the the continuum. The person who's micromanaging every bite and and sourcing every every morsel may do marginally better than the person who's not. But it's it you know in a, in a perfect world people would have the resources the time the energy to do to do it to that degree, but we're not living in a perfect world and with the time constraints that cancer puts on especially for people with families, you know this is or or, or they don't have a, care, a dedicated caregiver, you know got to make it simple and then show them the way to improve it over time. So you know maybe the first step is to you know find better quality eggs. Maybe a step is to, you know, like, like the, look, look at the butter, you know, find a, a, a grass fed, you know, butter that comes from grass fed animals. But it's not essential to make the shift into ketosis. It's not essential at all in the first month or two of, of the diet to be thinking about that. You should be thinking about get yourself into ketosis and enjoy the benefits of doing that. I want to I want to go back to the thing on fasting a little bit, because sure. one thing we didn't talk about there was what a lot of people call intermittent fasting. Yes. Uh, there's other ways to refer to that, and one is like prolonged nightly fasting. That's one way to call it, one thing to call it. And then there's time-restricted eating. And and uh, it's just different names for the same thing. Time-restricted eating came out of the animal research that calls it time-restricted feeding. You feed animals, but people eat, so it's time-restricted eating for people. But it's all saying the same thing, basically, which is you have this eating window and, you know, a lot of the people I work with, they get into this routine of it being somewhere. It's like between 10 in the morning and 6 in the evening, and that's when all their food is going to be consumed. Nothing after dinner, nothing when they first wake up in the morning, and then, you know, starting again at 10 o'clock. I know with athletic performance, there's like people that think one meal a day. There's like even I think there's like a hashtag that's one meal a day. And there's, uh, there's you know, or people that do like a four-hour eating window or they do like – they alternate days with it. It just it gets to be so complex. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I, I would rather see people slip into a rhythm and a routine and do the time-restricted eating, keep that time between dinner and bedtime free of food, go for a few hours in the morning without eating. I think that's that has the most benefit. And even for people who have experienced unintended weight loss, they seem, you know, open the widening, open that eating window a little bit more maybe. But that rhythm to the day, it seems to really work for people. And what you said about autophagy, that's happening overnight during that prolonged fast. To give you an opposite, I mean, it's like I, I'm working with someone, she's just new to the whole thing. She is getting up in the night to eat protein foods because she thinks her body needs it. So it's like, got to get her past that kind of thinking. Her body doesn't need, and it's, but this is what we're told that we need to nourish our bodies in cancer. Right. So she thinks that, that it's our, that the thing that she should be doing is to get up during the night to eat. But we can ignore some kinds of hunger signals. And if it's hunger that woke her up in the middle of the night, when she's ketogenic, that's not going to happen anymore. But 
Yeah, so there's a interesting, and this is, I share this with a lot of people, this uh, study, where they took the, the data from the nurses' health study. They looked at women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer and had been treated. And then they looked at the food diaries of all the women that had in this group. And they weren't looking at whether they were vegans or Mediterranean diet or paleo or any of that stuff. They weren't looking at any of that. They were looking at the timestamp on the diary. And the women that had a thir- just 13 hours of fasting a day, mm-hmm. consi- you know, consistently 13 hours of fasting, had a significantly decreased risk of recurrence at five years. That says huge things. Again, it's one of those association studies. There could have been a lot of confounders in there, but it's a really good place to start with thinking about the benefits of, and there's a plausible. So, you know, looking at that and, and, and I really changed my eating habits when I started to learn more. That's a perfect example. I mean, I got onto the path. We were feeding our son such like in, at the beginning, such poor quality stuff. We just didn't really know. We just wanted to do the foods right, not necessarily the best quality stuff. But over time, we got much better with what we were doing. And over time, that changed the way my husband and I ate as well. Not just in terms of, of you know, the being ketogenic, but in what foods we would choose in the supermarket. And it's like, well, you know, that's not much more than this. And this is going to be a better choice for us. Or if you look at like, or prioritize the organic veg- vegetables, you know, if they're too expensive, um, prioritize what you're going to get. And, you know, look online. There's a thing called the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, Those I agree with you. Yeah. That, so yeah. just about to say that there's some vegetables you don't need to, and fruits you don't need to buy organic. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And something that you mentioned in your book, you mentioned gluten free. And I know that helped me because I'm gluten free. I have a gluten sensitivity. But I remember when I started eliminating bread, that started eliminating a lot of carbs that I wasn't putting in my shopping basket because I no longer mm-hmm. could eat them. And people don't mm-hmm. realize that, that a lot of our stuff is built around bread and cookies and all kind of other things are built off of that whole thing of gluten. And once you get rid of that, that's pasta. A lot of the other things kind of go out the window. So that Well, and now we're, we're dealing with the other end of that, which is they, they put out these gluten-free products that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily healthier for us. So they have gluten-free pastas, but they're, they're easily digestible carbohydrates that are really just glucose molecules all bound together. And the, the gluten-free breads are, and crackers and things are quite, I had somebody send me a link to, a cracker that she wanted to get. It said almond, uh, you know, simply almond or something. Mm-hmm. Well, simply almond, the second ingredient there was tapioca flour. So tapioca starch. So <laughs> tapioca starch is just glucose. Yes. Anything that's starch is just glucose. It's just glucose, yeah. yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like we could talk for another hour or so oh, yeah. and I'll let you go. But the last thing is from what I got from your book is that you can still do this diet if you're vegan. And I think a lot of people out there are vegans and they might shy away from this diet because the diet is really built around meat. But you have had some success of people doing the diet when they were vegan, right? Yeah. And my feeling about that is it's so much easier to do the diet if you're not a vegan. But if you are, if you come to me and you're a vegan and and you're doing it for health reasons, I, you know, I lay it out there. This is not, you know, obviously this is not the, the way to go. It's not about the health. But if you're, if you're vegan for ethical reasons or a philosophy or a religious reason behind, you, 
you not wanting to consume animal products, then, you know, I don't try to, I never try to talk anybody out of that one. But if somebody comes to me and says they're not eating meat because it causes cancer, it's like, no, 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 uh-uh. You know, those studies were about processed meats and about portion sizes that are unrealistic in, in your world. In your new world of fighting cancer, you're not going to have portion sizes like that. And you're not going to want to eat that much processed meat. So, you know, and, and your other habits are going to be. So, no, it's a, the, I've worked with a lot of people who actually found relief in not having to do this as a vegan. They were doing it. They were vegan because they had been convinced on some level that meat was unhealthy for them. Yeah, I, but I, I get the sense that, you know, even in that book, if they wanted to do it, they could succeed with it. It seems like to me in the book you mentioned that it took a lot of monitoring and making sure that they got the right nutrients, but it, right. could, it could be done if they... It's a lot it. more work. Yeah. On that, on that continuum I talked about, about having to spend all the time in the kitchen, vegans do spend, you know, a lot more time on a ketogenic diet than somebody who's uh, allowing meat. Then there's also... Too, there's also ketogenic diet. In order to oxidize the fats appropriately, you, you need a compound called carnitine. Carnitine actually transports the fats into the mitochondria, long-chain fats into the mitochondria, where they can be utilized for the energy. So you're using more carnitine. Where do you get carnitine from the diet? You get it from red meat. That's the primary source. Our bodies make it as well. But it, for somebody who's been a, um, a long-time vegan, they're probably not going to get up to speed with making their own carnitine. And uh, so I look at carnitine levels in vegans. Wow. Miriam, I could talk to you for another hour, but I know you got to go and I want to let you go. But what is your, your website? I know you My have... website is dietarytherapies.com. And your okay. book is Keto for Cancer and... I always tell everybody at the end of the podcast, if you want to get the book, go to Amazon. I got it on Kindle. It's available uh -huh. in hardcover and any probably anywhere else that you're going to purchase books online. But it's a great book. It was a great, great, great resource for anyone who is going for cancer. And if you want to know more, I felt as though you got a great deal in the science. And I always want to know how things work. And you got into a lot of the science behind why it works. But that's just me. I'm a geek like that. Most people are. They don't want to know. Well, you know, there's been this, there's an explosion of information on the ketogenic diet, and I wanted to in, include enough information that was cancer specific, so that people could be reassured. Like you said, they freak out, and they're told all these different. Oh, do the alkaline diet. Oh, do the asparagus diet. Do the Gerson therapy. Do Budwig. They're told about all these diets as though they are all equivalent to one another, and they just have to pick the one that is going to work for them. And that's not true. They're not all equivalent to one another. There's science behind the ketogenic diet. And so there it is. And because there's, you know, I want to get people up to speed. I want to get the practitioners up to speed and comfortable with suggesting it and supporting it, as well as keto savvy people that really want to learn the science of it. But they don't have to. I don't want to intimidate anybody with that. You don't have to know any of the science. You can skip those first three chapters and just you know, start in after that and still understand how to do the diet. Yeah. Well, you, you did a, a great job. Like I said, I'm always wanting to know how things work and I going over the three chapters, although the Krebs cycle and all that stuff was painful, but I learned about that when I had <laughs> fitness classes, but I, and I, I kind of got back into it. I was like, Oh, let me wrap my head around this. But I was taught that in fitness class, we had to uh -huh. learn that. So it, it made a great deal of sense, but 
you did a great job on the book thank and you. I thank you for coming on the podcast and, and being Thanks for having me, Darren. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. And you are my last podcast. I'm gonna take December off. You're my last podcast. I'm gonna take the whole month of December off and kind of refresh myself and come back strong for 2019. So thank you for being on. Wonderful. Hey, I, I want to tell people too that there's some uh, great conferences coming up for uh, Low Carb and Keto. West Palm Beach, Low Carb USA. West Palm Beach in January, middle of January. On the West Coast, there's uh, the Metabolic Health Summit. That's more of a scientific one where Low Carb USA is a combination of science, science and, and just more kind of a great keto, uh, low carb community. Uh, the, the one on the West Coast is the very end of January into, into February. And, uh, that's called Metabolic Health Summit and that's in Los Angeles. I am. I'm actually, I'm speaking at that one and there's going to be a Latino day, I should mention too, on the Monday just after the conference because uh -huh. the Latino community is, um, uh, this is a really important move for them as far as their, their health here in this country and in in the Spanish-speaking world, we need to get the word out on keto. Yeah, I, there's a big move. Actually, there's a big movement in the African-American community. I had a guy on who, who I was telling you about who lost a significant amount of weight. It wasn't cancer, but he lost a significant amount of weight, and he actually ended up reversing his type 2 diabetes. And, and Jimmy Moore had him on. I'm sure you're familiar with Jimmy. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. Jimmy had him on. and But it's, I think... Things are filtering out into different different ethnicities, and people are realizing that you know they need to be a little bit more healthier. But the one in Low West Palm, I'm going to see if I can make that one because actually oh, that's that about thirty minutes up the street, and I can I can meet you. So I'm definitely oh, going to put great. that on my calendar. All right, Miriam, thank you so much for being on Perfectly Healthy Talk Radio. Thank you. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.